Welcome to Everyday Nonviolence. This podcast is produced by Friends for a Nonviolent World, or FNVW. FNVW champions nonviolence as the foundation for effective programs and actions to promote the dignity of every human being. The Everyday Nonviolence podcast highlights people in our community who are using the principles and practices of nonviolence to transform themselves and the world around us. Their stories deepen our understanding of the impact of violence and the many ways nonviolence can be used for healing and social change. Welcome to Everyday Nonviolence. I'm Ellery McCardle, your host for this episode. My guest is Steve Wickelgren, the Clinical Director for Minnesota Crisis Intervention Team. It's a nonprofit organization that he co-founded in 2006. Minnesota CIT provides law enforcement and mental health professionals with information and training on how to safely and compassionately handle a person in a mental health crisis. Steve, I'm really glad you could talk with us today. Um, I want to start off with, can you describe the services provided by Minnesota CIT? Thanks. It's a pleasure to be here. Our goals overall are to give officers and other people attending the class. It is designed for police, but a lot of other public safety and even some other folks, you know, out on the street working there are now attending this class. But what we're giving them is basic tools and understanding of, we kind of want to say the mental health issues, um, but we literally talk about the brain. Part of the brain is what falls under abnormal psychology, which is the mental illnesses. But it's not just that, it's the human brain. So we get a better understanding of why people are thinking, feeling, reacting certain ways. And sometimes it's an illness-related issue. And then sometimes it's just an emotional piece. And with that understanding of much like what we would say, uh, I'm a marriage and family therapist as well, we all know that you don't look at your spouse when they're upset and just say, hey, calm down, you know, right? That really does not work. And we know why. So there's a bunch of issues that come up and we go over that in detail to kind of arm the people in the class to better understand what this person might be going through. It helps increase empathy because it is understandable for maybe where they're at and what they're doing. And that really just allows us time for them to process it. Number one, it gives them more time for the person to change their behavior if that's what's needed. And we also give them tools because the empathetic, slow approach isn't always the best, depending on the situation. So one of the best examples is someone who's uh, manic from suffering from bipolar or a manic type behavior from drugs or other areas. Being nice and slow and empathetic is, is not what they need. They tend to need more direction and consistency. And so again, we with that understanding and the tools to apply it with CIT across the nation, that has shown to be successful. That's our goal. So Steve, in your training, it's not just textbook, pencil, paper type of stuff. You, as part of it, use paid actors 
Tell me about how that works within training. Well, honest, Ellery, that, that is the training. The information I give is hopefully useful, and we expect them to use the ideas given to them and remember the textbook ideas. But it is our actors because it's they're doing it. We do 10 hours of role play scenarios of the 40-hour class. So 25% of the time, they're in a room with an actor going over situations. And these actors have been taught by us what symptoms and behaviors we want them to portray. They kind of have a basic story of the person they're playing and the person's history or current situation. They're in an apartment or out on the street, whatever. But the key piece is you're portraying someone with this mental health issue, bipolar or schizophrenia or an anxiety disorder. And it's not just that, but we give them parameters. The mental health conditions are so, they span quite a ways. I heard on the radio and uh, I'm a clinician and I've worked with people with depression and I'm familiar with the DSM, the diagnostic manual, of course. But on the radio, someone said for major depressive disorder, there's 647 or some number like that, possible combinations of symptoms for that meeting that criteria for major depressive disorder. So in theory, 647 possible looks to it. And what we tell the actors is we want you to portray depression that looks like this, you know, more like in 30 different possibilities, not 600. We don't want them going off the charts with a type of depression. So we give them direction for what it basically looks like. They are professional actors who pull the students in. I've trained the actors. I've trained the CIT students who have gone on to become coaches who manage the acting scenario with the students because they're in small groups. So we have coaches running those. And I will sit there and watch an actor and even years after of doing this, I will still sit there and I will start to tear up when I hear an actor talking about their history and how it's affected their children. And I've heard the scenario before. I know what they're saying, but it is so engrossed. The whole room just gets into it and it feels so real. So those professional actors is what our training is about. So you can see firsthand through the actors and their effects on these officers, the impact of your training then. Absolutely. Friday afternoon, it is extremely common for the students to go, holy crap, I feel completely beat up. I need to go home and take a nap. It hits them hard, but they're smiling when they say it. I've had 20-year veterans, 25-year veterans come up to me, shake my hand and say, this is the best training I've attended in my entire career. And I always feel good. I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm a part of this training. And and I feel so happy. And then I realized, no, dummy, it's not you, it's the actors. (laughs) 100% the actors. I'd be willing to guess that you are one of very few people in this country who have this unique perspective, having been an officer and then now being a therapist on the other side of things. I think there's more than just me, for sure. But yeah, there aren't a lot of us. There's quite a few. And I started this path 20 years ago, 30, geez, I got into law enforcement almost 35 years ago. 
halfway through, I got into mental health through my career. So I've been doing the mental health end of it for 20 years now. 20 years ago, it was not real common. I knew of others in Minnesota. I knew of, I think, four of us, maybe. Now I know of quite a few. I'm supervising two other police officers, four former police officers. I've got another one starting with my practice this next week and another one next year. Um, and I heard from around the state, there's probably eight or nine. And I've heard that around the country is the push and the, the stigma of getting help for mental health issues as that declines. You know, that population in law enforcement is showing a desire to seek out services, which is badly needed. I'll say this, over 30 years ago when I started, the idea of seeing a therapist, you would be ostracized. You would be said, oh my gosh, you must be crazy and you should probably quit because you can't handle it. That was the culture and we've come a long way since then. So I think there's definitely more of us looking at that field. Has that culture changed quite a bit though in the last 20 years or just a little bit? Well, my perspective, which I realize is one, it has changed in my perspective a lot. Like I said, 20 years ago, I was trying to convince the cops that, hey, this can benefit you. And a few of them would come in, but they would come in when it was bad because they couldn't handle it. Now they're coming in for lighter issues, for maintenance agencies around the nation. And here in Minnesota, I think we're doing pretty well. They're doing um, what's called checkup from the neck up. And it's a mandated appointment once a year, generally, to sit down with a counselor and just talk about your mental wellness. You can bring up problems if you want, but again, the push is going in a very good direction. And that wasn't even being considered 20 years ago. So in my mind, it has gone quite a ways. The stigma can be reduced more, I will say that, but it's much better. So given that you're 20 years into this, how has your work changed uh, over these two decades? It's become more frustrating. The culture of law enforcement, the support of law enforcement, and really especially the expectation of law enforcement, and I will say almost absolutely because of cameras, has gone higher and higher and higher. And for years, police work was the dirty job that the public wanted cops to do, but they didn't want to see it. Kind of like a garbage man. You know, I'll set it there, but you take care of it. I don't want to see what you do with it. I don't want to smell it. I don't. Now that the public got to see how ugly it is, when these cameras first started and they're like, oh my gosh, that cop is beating up a person. I didn't see them beating up a person. I saw them using force to get them under control, but the public again, doesn't understand it. And the expectations started climbing more and more and more, the more videos we saw. And it's now I'm hearing, especially with CIT, well, you just need to de-escalate them. And I hear that, which yes, that is a good approach, but the public will use that in a sentence in a way that instead of using force, you have to de-escalate. As if whatever the cop does, this other person will go with. And there are people that cannot and will not respond to our verbal de-escalations. And again, this is where we start going into the brain of people. 
and in their mental state and in their emotional state, I'm sorry, at times cannot be accomplished. And so now tactics need to be used. And again, that starts to look and get ugly. And like many other things, cops are not perfect. Some cops are better than others at some of these skills. I just read an article today that talked about use of force and the training that police across the country get and how it's just very dismal, so little, and yet such perfection is expected. So staying on cameras, if body cameras are making things quite frustrating, what would be a better way to hold police accountable, though, when they go over the line? Uh, Yeah, I, I would not. I want the cameras. The cops now want, even though they fought, because, oh, you're going to see what I do. And just as an example, I heard of an officer who got in trouble for swearing, which there are policies about language. And yes, we need to be professional. But this officer was driving with their lights and sirens on, is my understanding. And as they were driving, it's called Code 3 through the traffic. Of course, other drivers will do certain things. And and they use the F word all alone in their squad car, but it was being recorded and they got to the call and supervisors ended up looking at the call for another reason. But the officer got in trouble for swearing while they were alone in their car. And that's part of the expectation of perfection. That's what cops are afraid of, is you're going to catch me doing something wrong. And not only does the public expect you to be doing everything just right, your supervisors kind of do as well. And it's just a venue to get you in trouble. But what they have found is it actually clears them in many cases. When they say the officer did or said this, and here's video that disproves it. So I, I, many of us, and I include, I want cameras. I just, I would really appreciate the public to go, these are human beings providing service regarding that perfection and using force just right. And did they de-escalate or did they talk to him long enough before they tried tactics? And everyone's debating it. And people that don't know much about it are giving their opinion. That looked awful. Many things do look awful. Again, it's a dirty business. Many people have started looking at another profession or talking about it. Standards are increasing. I just wonder where it's going to go. In talking to the cops now, they many, many, many of them are literally afraid to get involved in their job, which they would gladly do, but they're afraid of getting caught up in a situation where you can't win and something's going to happen. And now we all know this. Crime is rising. The cops have their hands tied to a, so to speak, and the public knows it, not just the public, but the criminals especially know it. So they're the ones taking more chances to escape and evade their criminal behavior and consequences. There are good things about that accountability, and we need to find some balance. So let's get back to your training. Do you know the percentage of Minnesota police officers who've completed the training? We're, we've gone over this for, since 2006. For, so for 14 years, we've been tracking. And at one point, we had a number of around 30%. But then what we're also not considering is some of these officers get promoted, they retire, 
they move other places, new officers are hired. I think we were maybe slightly making a gain about five years ago. The pandemic has, I believe, got us a little behind now. And with with the pandemic and here in the metro area, the Twin Cities, with George Floyd and the riots and what's happening in law enforcement, a lot of people have left the profession. The numbers are very low. They're trying to hire. So I just see Minnesota CIT and the other trainers that might be out there, they're, we're behind getting that training out there. More of it is needed, especially those younger officers coming in if they have not had it. The other part of that that I've said all along is many agencies and chiefs want the skills program right after school to have the students go through it for a couple of reasons. It it is good training. It increases awareness. And that way, the student has to pay for the training, not the department. So there's that part of it. But I disagree with having it done early in a career or at the very beginning, because it is and I will always say this, it is a specialty skill. It's very similar to, let's use at the other end of the spectrum, a SWAT officer. You do not take a brand new officer and put them through SWAT training and then say, okay, if we have a SWAT situation, this cop is good to go. And this new officer that is just trying to figure out the best way to do a traffic stop or to handle your regular domestic call, and you're giving them a highly technical position like SWAT, that doesn't make any sense. So that CIT training should come two, three, four years after they start the job, have gotten used to how to talk to people in calm situations, in intense situations, to develop their command presence, which some people, and I would say a majority of the cops getting into the profession, that's something you need to build up is a what we call a command presence. You have to step up your act and tell people, hey, you need to do what I say. Most of them, we have to build that up. And again, we learn to talk to people, then put them through the CIT training. Now that you do that, let's understand mental health issues. Let's understand emotional issues. Let's look at better ways to talk. So too early, I'm opposed to and many of us with Minnesota CIT are, but we're not in control of when they send people through. Agencies will decide that. I would imagine you'd want all officers to have this type of training at some point. Do you feel that most officers would benefit from it? I do believe every officer would benefit from it because honestly, it's not just the CIT calls where some of this comes into play. So I've heard people have gone through the class say that even just on a traffic stop, have you been stopped by the police before? Yes, I have. Did your heart rate go up as soon as you saw the lights go on? Absolutely. Absolutely. So right there, just a contact with an officer starts anxiety going. And the officers that went through the class, because of that information and the in-depth 40 hours of talking about the brain and depression, anxiety, all of that, they're more aware of it and they're looking for it and they talk about how it helped. So yes, all officers can benefit from it, but on the core mental health crisis, my schizophrenia is 
really strong and I'm having horrible interactions with my family and maybe some violence is coming out, that's where you want your top people responding. And that's where I recommend that an agency still have designated CIT officers who are good at it, who want to do it, and they want to do it for the right reason. So one of the examples across the country is, well, it's a special assignment, so maybe let's pay them, you know, a dollar an hour more, because they'll do that for other assignments sometimes. And Memphis, Tennessee, who developed CIT, and a lot of the big programs go, no, do not pay an officer more to do this job, because I can think of a whole bunch of officers that go, I'll do anything for a dollar an hour more. And so they're not doing it for the right reason. We want the right people doing it for the right reason. But again, everyone trained is great because you're going to run across it. But I don't like the agencies who train everyone and think that, bam, that's the answer. We've got it done. That to me is a mistake. We know that there's just been this growing demand for changes in policing uh, and departments. How important do you think CIT training is at this point in time, especially in being able to help address all of these concerns? I I think it's important because of those expectations. It's huge. What I, again, I will put my opinion out there. I disagree with the expectation. I think police officers are expected to do too broad of a job. We need to be use of force experts. And now we're, I'm exaggerating, but now we're expecting them to be counselors and compassionate and de-escalate and understand mental illness. And I will even say this during our class, when one of my grandchildren was born, within about 30, 40 minutes, we were in the hospital visiting our daughter and our new grandchild, and three different nurses came into the room for three different issues you know, like the IV and the lactation nurse and another different nurse. And I'm not a younger person anymore. Um, (laughs) When I was in the hospital, you had a nurse for the shift. Now it's specialized. Nurses are running, one nurse is going around doing everyone's IV and another nurse is doing another thing. And yet in law enforcement, the broadening of the expectations of police in my opinion, is too broad. And in such an important issue, you know, with life or death, I think it's expecting too much, including CIT, to be honest with you. I I think that high expectation of understanding the mental illnesses and, and being good at doing what I train Even though I do it and I love it and I think it's important, uh, again, we are part of what's spreading out that knowledge base that's expected. And I think it's unfair to put on the men and women who do that job. So it sounds like you would support the notion that there are some, maybe many situations where it shouldn't be the officer who is the responder. Correct. And this is the problem is cops are going to calls that they shouldn't be going to. But when you get a phone call and you're getting pieces of information, and because the police are right there 24-7, it's an easy fix. Now, what especially Minneapolis is doing, they're talking about a public safety department with police and with social workers, mental health workers. I don't know that that's the answer. Again, this is the hard part of the issue is 
you send that social worker because John is off his medication and having some strong symptoms and you get there and now John is because of it's deteriorated he is now suicidal and homicidal and again basically psychotic and having a whole break with reality and it's now it's very dangerous and now a social worker gets killed because they sent the wrong person it's a rock in a hard place anything else before we go that that we should touch on when it comes to policing and mental health I, again, my heart and soul is in CIT, these good cops that do want to help people, and that's how we're built. The the cops, the nurses, the firefighters, the medics, all these people, deep down, they're wanting to help people. That's, you know, military folks. They want to serve. I hope that the public can just let them do it and try to be hopefully a little less judgmental when they don't see perfection. Steve, it was really nice to talk with you. Thank you so much for sharing such a unique perspective on all of this. I do think it's unique. (laughs) I I know I'm not mainstream. I'll I'll say that. (laughs) Well, thank you. No, I appreciate it. We appreciate it. I've been speaking with Steve Wickelgren about his work providing crisis intervention training to law enforcement personnel and mental health professionals. You can find out more about Minnesota CIT on their website, mncit.org. The policy research paper on de-escalating interactions between the police and people with mental illnesses is available right now at fnvw.org. Thank you for listening to Everyday Nonviolence. To learn more about Friends for a Nonviolent World, visit our website at fnvw.org or call 651-917-0383. We hope you will subscribe so that you don't miss future episodes and insightful conversations. Please note that the views expressed in this podcast are those of the host and guest and are not intended to reflect the official positions of FNVW, its staff, or board of directors. 